my hope is that we're helping people win votes. My hope is that we're helping the whole kind of movement rack up more votes. But even if we weren't, <laughs> which I hope we are, I would feel pretty happy that we're saving people time and money, I think, on these campaigns and giving them more sense of control. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Max Wood, founder of Deck Technologies, which provides democratic campaigns information on who to reach and how to win using an analytical database and an app that helps run targeted digital ads, helps figure out from whom to raise money, and does other targeting. Max is back on the show after a few years to talk about his continued path in progressive political technology entrepreneurship. For those of you who are interested in what it takes to build an enterprise in this space, Max is a good listen because he's done well, but is very frank about the challenges. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Max Wood of DEC. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Max. Welcome back. Hello. Great to be back. How are you? I'm good. I was talking to Johnny and Averett from Evenscore, and they are another HDL-funded tech group. And they said, oh, we're partnering with Max and getting some data from them. And I'd also heard some developments in what you'd done with your business since we had last talked back in 2019. And I thought it might be nice to catch up and share kind of with the space a little bit what you've been up to. When we last talked in 2019, you had come out of the Zuckerberg world and reformed the company and were going to re-release your product. But I suspect a lot has happened. Catch me up. Yeah, a lot has happened. Thanks for the opportunity to give an update. Maybe the first thing to do is just to quickly introduce what is DEC. DEC is a targeting tool for campaigns and for progressive um, you know, nonprofits and PACs and other groups. But, you know, the overwhelming majority of our users, at least in a raw numbers perspective, is campaigns. Um, and what it does is gives campaigns, regardless of the level, you know, race that they're running. So county commissioners, state legislative campaigns, et cetera, access to the kinds of campaign specific scores for, you know, will this person vote for you? Will this person turn out to vote? Will this person make a contribution financially? Will this person 
uh, potentially be persuadable at all levels of the ballot. And those kinds of targeting scores have historically been available to kind of big fancy campaigns with big budgets, but not to smaller campaigns. And so um, the kind of first layer of what we do is we have kind of a novel way of generating those scores that allows us to do it affordably and make them available at a wide scale. And then uh, the way most people encounter DEC is that we make it available through this kind of user-friendly web app where folks who maybe don't have any experience in the campaign space can easily like click around and generate a really good list for persuasion or turnout or fundraising or whatever, and then send it to a tool like Vote Builder or PDI or whatever kind of product they're using to manage their day-to-day voter contact. And these are scores that are individualized. They are yes. related to a person's record, a voter's record. That's right. Right. Um, and is, it, is that pretty similar to sort of the scores that would be available from Catalyst or other analytics firms that calculate those sort of things? Uh, yeah, in, in practice, like in how you use them, for sure. I think the thing that makes our scores different is that we're in an era where there's increasing polarization and party loyalty, at least among the majority of the electorate. Uh, but we do see that the further you go down ballot, the more flexible people are about who they'll support and, and what elections they'll participate in and be enthusiastic about. And so our models weave in a bunch of additional indicators like the traits of a candidate's donors, for example. Like, do you have an unusually large number of 18 to 24-year-old contributors in your district or Asian American contributors in your district. We also bring in information about the kind of news coverage a campaign is getting when it's available, things like endorsements from issue advocacy groups, their, you know, history in elected office. So in redistricting cycles, we'll look at like, was this person a incumbent for this voter, but not the other voter? And and things like that get factored in so that we can give Every campaign, regardless of you know how big their district is, sort of a, a tailored view of who they should be targeting. Um, so, for example, obvious, this is like an extreme example, but Joe Manchin regularly wins in West Virginia, which is not a state that's friendly to us, right? We have this idea that candidate effects have kind of fallen off, and empirically they have a little bit, but it's they're not gone, right? Um, and they're pretty significant. And the whole reason you run a campaign even in red areas or places where there's a Republican incumbent is that there's a notion that you can sort of change the dynamics of your race. And so um, we've tried to build an approach to building targeting scores that is cognizant of that and gives you a glimpse of whether or not, you know, you're succeeding or have an advantage on that front. So do catch me up with what sort of changes you've made to the product, to the team, to the ownership uh, since since we last talked, so it's been a wild um, few years. Let's see. In 2020, we worked with uh, 1,200 campaigns, uh, used deck, which was really exciting. About 80 million individual like voter records were exported from deck by campaigns up and down the ballot, and so we feel like a lot of outreach was done. You know, using. The data that we offer, we launched a digital ads product after the pandemic slowed down in-person voter contact. So 
deck had really been targeted toward building good lists for um, door knocks and phone calls. And so we shifted gears and supported that, but also began to support other types of outreach. Um, and there's like a, we have an integration with Facebook ads where you can launch Facebook ads really easily from deck. Um, what else? Um, I mean, we, we've learned a lot about how to build trust with users. We've learned a lot about the, and for your, for your listeners, I have a, I have a young baby. And so my thoughts are kind of a, <laughs> a mess right now. My baby brain. You have your baby monitor on. I know that. I do. I do. <laughs> and my eyes are on it. So, um, there's a lot of things that you can do with data that seem cool and seem interesting. So in 2020, when we relaunched our product, we thought, let's give people all the information we have about their race. So we have all these scores and we can build forecasts with those scores. So like, let's show them what we think is their probability of winning. The scores are leveraging all this finance and media data. So let's visualize that in the app and let them explore the historic media data for candidates in their district and their media data and see what our NLP models said about the kind of coverage and the sentiment of the coverage. And we sort of went all out providing all this sort of adjacent data to our core value add, which in our mind was helping people make better lists. The lesson that we learned incrementally from 2020 to now is that all that stuff uh, shouldn't be a part of our product, right? There are some people who want to see our forecasts and we can share those with them. There's some people who are interested in all the wacky media and finance data we have, and we can share that data with them. They're the right users for it. But, you know, the 1200 state ledge campaigns and local campaigns, these are people, you know, running their own campaigns. It's usually just one person, the candidate herself, all this extra information was a distraction from the sort of core value add we were trying to offer. And so we found ourselves both like misdirecting the user into like what was important to pay attention to in our product, but also having to like support and improve these features in the app that we didn't really care about, you know? And um, so there's been a, a, a lot of learning how to um, better serve these users um, and make them more effective and make them give them a better experience with the product. So that's been a major theme. Distribution is also a big challenge, as you're probably intimately familiar with from your time in the space. We've gone back and forth between, you know, early on working directly with campaigns, but realizing, you know, everything really has to run through the state parties, but then that's really complex because there are some state parties that are excited to work with you, some state parties that already have their program figured out and don't want to add or subtract anything from the tech stack that they recommend to their campaigns or that they use themselves or the targeting advice that they've worked out with their team and their consultants. So we've gotten a little bit better over time at navigating those relationships and those politics. We have a great relationship with the DNC now where DEC is free to all Democratic general election campaigns and paid for by the DNC. And so that's been great. All of our models now include, um, you know, contact data that the that is that the DNC syncs over from Vote Builder. You know, as campaigns collect contact information, it's slowly improving our um, our models, and that's been an exciting change. That's built some more confidence in our product among users. 
anywho, I'm kind of rambling. Uh, there's a lot that we've learned um, there in some ways, like what we've done has been more successful than I had ever thought. I think we touch more campaigns and are more, you know, involved with the day-to-day operation of voter contact programs than we would have been in my wildest dreams. And that's awesome. At the same time, running a business in this space is really hard. And so, you know, the team's grown, the team's shrunk. It's financially very difficult. And that's been a struggle, um, figuring out how to like serve the soft side and the hard side simultaneously is more challenging than I would have thought. Building for campaigns that are run by the candidate herself is so different than building for like the League of Conservation Voters, even if like the, you know, end project of contacting, persuading, turning out voters is still the same. So um, yeah, basically that's, we're, we're sort of on an ongoing quest to figure out how to do this the right way with maximum impact, but things are generally going pretty well. Yeah. Let me ask you some questions about some of those things you said. It's, I can hear the ongoing challenge as I hear with every company, um, that you talk to, it's never easy, even when you're moving upward and onward, 1200 campaigns is both a very large number and a very small number. I mean, it, it's a lot of campaigns to use a product that you put together. It's also a very small proportion of the kind of campaigns that are out there that could take advantage of it. And you talked about distribution. What do you think is a realistic number for you guys to be aiming at? So when we supported 1,200 campaigns in 2020, we weren't offering deck to local campaigns. So it was just state legend up. And that year there were like, I think there were about 7,000 campaigns that could have used deck. And I think if you realistically look at it, most of those campaigns aren't running programs. They're really safe incumbents or they're sort of long shots and the candidates were dragged kicking and screaming into putting their name on the ballot just in case, you know, something favorable happened. Um, and so I, I felt like maybe I could see like 2,000, 3,000 of that group using a product like Deck, but I was pretty happy with where we landed in terms of like what is the actual like re- most realistic market saturation point. I think the bigger opportunity, of course, is with the hundreds of thousands of local races that happen every cycle. And so we, we've opened up to local campaigns. But even there, it's like often much less formal programming and campaigning than we think of in the sort of federal and state races that folks in our space kind of generally work on across the country or support across the country. And my excitement over this was hoping, you know, we could have a hundred thousand campaigns using deck, but I think the number is probably closer to something like, I'd say there might be like 5,000 local campaigns that would benefit from a product like ours every four years. So yeah, I think the total universe of campaigns that could use a product like ours and have it like be additive to what they're doing every four years is maybe something like 8,000 campaigns. So if we ever hit that number, I'd feel like, you know, we can sort of move on, (laughs) you know, like 
try to maintain what we've done uh, and start figuring out solutions to new problems. You talked about it being financially challenging to run a company and uh, boy, that's quite normal. Um, I, you had said something about you were going to raise money this time that was bootstrapped originally. Did you end up doing that? And what yeah. was that experience like? Yeah, we've, I think it's helpful to be candid so other people in this space can learn from what you've experienced. I think I'm allowed to say how much money we raised. I don't know if any of our investors would care, but we've raised about three and a half million dollars so far. And if you had told me that when I first started Deck as like a bootstrapped sort of like DIY project in 2015, 2016, that we would have that much capital at some point, it would blow my mind. But what I discovered is that that isn't a meaningful amount of money when you're trying to like hire really great software engineers and license data from companies like Target Smart and when these different media vendors we get data from and our Google Cloud platform, like infrastructure costs are really high. Um, and so there's all these costs that really rack up. And so at one point we were eight or nine people. Right now we're a five person team. I know there are companies that have millions of dollars every year in revenue in our space. Um, there's a world where we could be one of those companies, but it's not like our obvious trajectory, you know? I think early on also we raised money easily because people saw this is a high impact way to help a lot of campaigns and who knows, maybe this will scale and I'll get a lot of my money back uh, and get a big you know, return. And then over time, there's still that possibility, I would say, to potential investors. But like, you know, uh, it's harder to make the case that you'll have like a big hockey stick growth period once you've been doing it for a few years. So where we've settled is more trying to we still try to raise money so we can grow our team and do all the ambitious stuff that's in our backlog. But we've learned to also sort of rein in our ambitions a bit and focus on what's most impactful and what's most likely to support itself financially in the long term. Um, and so that means making the app a lot leaner and focusing on the, the things that drive action. It's fortunate that that is both good for our users and makes it easier for us to maintain the app. We've focused our staffing more on like sales and support than on engineering because it was like an all engineer team for a while, which as a person with a background in engineering, I was like, that's how I should be, right? I mean, we should seem to build product and the software engineers can be the support people and the salespeople. And that just didn't work super well. <laughs> and so we have awesome people on our team, a um, person named CG who leads our support work and a person named Aaron who leads our partnerships and business development work. And they've totally transformed what we're doing now. And we've been making a profit so far this year, mostly by finding ways to make the data we were already sitting on sort of actionable for soft side users. So we have a product we call Hubble, which is just sort of tidy repackaging of the data that goes into all of our models. So we built a pretty great election results product, a pretty great campaign finance product, a pretty great media product. We've built lots and lots of scores that are interesting, not just the candidate level support scores, but things like 
what people will do with a vote by mail ballot if they were to receive one, who people likely voted for in past elections, what kind of media people consume, that kind of stuff. It's been like a journey of thinking we'll raise money and make this really big to realizing, oh, well, in some ways, having access to funds keeps you from having to really hunker down and focus on what you're doing right and get creative about making the things you already are doing impactful and having them generate revenue. We fell on a bit of hard times after about a year or two, but I think that that ended up being in the best interest of our long-term prospects and our users because we had to get rid of stuff that didn't matter. We had to surface ways to make everything we were just sort of passively sitting on useful to the ecosystem and kind of reorganize to better serve our folks. You've come to something really valuable there that was kind of my experience without having raised the money. I I bootstrapped the NGP and I never raised any money while I was in charge, which was 12 years. That's awesome. What that meant for me was I could spend what people paid me for the software and not not more. And in fact, it'd be best if I spent a little less than that and keep a bunch of payrolls in place in case you're always worried about uh, whether there'd be enough. And even as, as it was growing, in that growing period, that early growing period, I didn't have that experience of millions of dollars coming in. And I've often seen that it goes away very quickly, no matter what the amount of money is, because you spend money differently that you don't work as hard to earn. That may not be true for everybody, and everybody says they will be very careful, but I see company after company that, you know, and it makes sense to raise money in lots of cases, but I see company after company struggle with those transitions, especially if it didn't boom the way that that they hoped. Yeah, I mean, that was that was certainly our experience. So part of the thing when you're raising in most software, most like corners of the software world, raising $3 million is not <laughs> a huge deal. For me, it was like earth shattering. And it's like a larger amount. Um, it's a lot of money in this space. I think so. Um, but so when you're raising that kind of money from folks, you have to sell them on some exciting big vision, right? And so you show them what your org chart's going to be, and you show them what your product roadmap is going to be, and you make all these assumptions about what things are going to look like. And then you get the money, and you have to kind of execute this plan that you came up with in PowerPoint at a Starbucks, which is not informed by you know, the pain of sort of building something from the ground up with a lot of user feedback. And you have to sell yourself on it to some extent, don't you? Oh, yeah, you totally. That's right. Yeah, I'm a pretty uh, insecure, anxious person. And you have to convince yourself that this is great and worth doing and it's right. And so a lot of your own like mechanisms for like second guessing things wither a bit. But it is a good idea. Right. Like it clearly is a valuable thing to pull together all this data and make it available for the kinds of uses that you've identified. I think that that's kind of understood. Yeah. The folks who you end up raising money from in this space who 
God bless them. I'm so grateful <laughs> that there's a world of people who want to support companies like DEC. I think one thing that happens is these are not folks who are like grassroots campaigners and activists and like candidates themselves. They don't often have experiences that they can use to relate to the folks who are the user base that would help a product scale in our space. What kind of people did you find to raise money from? I mean, you mentioned Higher Ground Labs. Their funding of us is public. I actually don't know if any other organization's funding of us is public. But I mean, I'm just talking about type of people rather than yeah, name. Uh, Silicon Valley folks who are who are politically yeah, interested. That's right. That's right. These are people with multiple investments in political, yes. progressive political tech. Yes. And they have often really smart advisors who understand the political context more and they ask really great questions and they drive much better product decisions. And they've been invaluable to me. But, um, you know, I think different things would be built out of that short burst following raising a bunch of money if like neighborhood team leaders from the 2008 election were the ones cutting the checks, right? Do you think you would have been better served if you could raise a follow-on $8 million? Yeah. Do you know somebody? (laughs) (laughs) No. But, I I mean, the same people could theoretically make that kind of investment and have elsewhere. I mean, but, 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 I mean, like you had kind of drawn a bit of a lesson that the hard times was contributing to maybe focusing what you were doing. I mean... I'm just wondering what the the net impact would it be a kind of repeat of the same experience or do you think now you've learned you know like better how to use a new tranche of money or whatever I think so my team and I are working really hard right now we have about 300 campaigns using our product which is a lot for this period in the cycle when most states haven't resolved their primaries that's like about 3x where we were at this point in 2020. And then the campaigns that are using the product are using it much more. So I mentioned like 80 million target like records were exported in 2020, right about 50 or 60 million right now, because folks are like recreating their lists weekly in case they changed. And folks are using deck more for things like fundraising and voter registration that weren't huge use cases um, last time around. And folks are using our digital ads product a lot more. Let me just ask you one thing about that, because like one of my frustrations about being in political tech was the very marginal impact when you really think about it that that occur. I mean, it's hard to affect a race, right? I mean, you know that as much as anybody, how predictable to some extent campaigns are and how bound they are to the demographics and the politics where they are. I mean, do you think that by empowering 1,200 campaigns and more in the future, that races were won that wouldn't have been won? It's hard to prove, but this is the case I'd make. I'll try to like say succinctly two or three things that I try to tell myself because I arrive at the same questions. And you know, if this isn't a, an enterprise we're in to all become fabulously wealthy, we want to be making an impact, right? And making a difference and making our users happy and feel like we contributed to their win and feel confidence in that ourselves. So we are constantly reassessing that as a team. 
these are the reasons we do it. Number one is I think people don't fully understand the scope of the targeting problem in these races. So um, I mentioned earlier that we have this awesome partnership with the DNC where we're weaving sort of their um, proprietary data and with our proprietary data and making improved models for campaigns. In doing that, we get to kind of look at all the where all the voter contact has gone among the cohort of users that our product most appeals to over the last few cycles. I don't have the graph right in front of me, but um, something we've shown investors and something that we've used as a guidepost in making product decisions is that um, a surprisingly large amount of outreach from these campaigns has gone toward folks that we would flag as uh, like people for whom a contact would cause backlash, like low turnout probability, low support probability voters for whom contact might mobilize them, right? Might make them more energized or folks who are just not persuadable and talking to them might be a waste of time or folks who are very high support, very high turnout folks. And they're not getting a recruitment call or a fundraising call. They're getting like a voter ID call or a turnout call. Like that's like a waste of effort. Only about 40% of the outreach on average over the last couple cycles among, you know, these non-competitive I hope they're competitive, but these like non-battleground, well-funded um, sort of um, state legislative and local campaigns, only like 40% of that outreach is going to folks we would classify as like a good, effective target. And the thing is, th- these campaigns are reaching a lot of people. When you add up all the outreach from state ledge campaigns and local campaigns that is going in and out of you know the voter contact systems that we integrate with, it's about equivalent to the size of the Biden campaign's outreach across all 50, you know, coordinated campaigns. And so if we're like generating all this backlash energy all throughout the state through state and local campaigns who most authentically represent the Democratic Party to their constituents, that's a big problem for the movement writ large. So number one is even if it doesn't help a certain campaign win or lose, it's like bringing everybody down and could bring everybody up. The other thing I'd say is there's features in deck that I didn't really touch on earlier, like where you recommend kind of good budget allocation strategies. We say if you if you can raise $200,000, we recommend put like this budget toward turnout-focused digital advertising and this budget toward like persuasion-focused mail or whatever. This is all based on stuff we're familiar with through the Analyst Institute and all these recommendations that you run into that is often inaccessible to these campaigns. And look, maybe that advice will be out of date in two years. Maybe it's out of date now. Maybe no campaigning matters. But I think even if we're not winning people votes, we're hopefully saving them money and giving them resources where they feel like they don't have to pay a consultant, some big retainer to walk them through how to make these strategy decisions or we're giving them some idea of a baseline of here's how much a campaign like yours will normally put toward mail or TV or whatever. And giving them, when I first, you know, volunteered in campaigns, the idea of persuasion and turnout was novel to me. I didn't come in with the knowledge of like, what's the archetype of 
campaign outreach. And that's true of a lot of these candidates. Like they spend all day trying to figure out how to get on the local news or get the endorsement of the local like NAACP or NARAL or whatever. The idea of an outreach program is like eighth on the priority list and they're not going to put that much thought into it. And so when they get free access to deck through their state party, they can then go in and see you have this many people to talk to for turnout, this many people to talk to for persuasion. And it helps like make everything click a bit. So my hope is that we're helping people win votes. My hope is that we're helping the whole kind of movement rack up more votes. But even if we weren't, (laughs) which I hope we are, I would feel pretty happy that we're saving people time and money, I think, on these campaigns and giving them more sense of control. You mentioned the the partnership with the DNC. Someone told me, it sounds like maybe erroneously, that the DNC had actually acquired your enterprise and brought it in-house. Is that That would be great. That did not happen, no. Yeah, Yeah, I guess that that must have just referred to that arrangement that you had, had put together. I've often wondered about the DNC does build things internally, and they have a complicated relationship with the the external tech ecosystem. Do you think that there's a future where the firms that serve the candidates and other members of the progressive ecosystem are more tightly bound to the party? I don't know. I think it's like a fun topic for like people like you and me to sit in coffee shops and at bars and talk about, because I think there's a lot of directions you could go in to answer that. My like instinct is that we'd be better off if the DNC was more hands-on about the tech ecosystem. And there was a world, I guess, you know, it seems pretty distant now, but where the DNC had, Um, power because the DNC was how you got money because it was so hard to raise money on your own as a campaign, but the DNC and the state parties and the sister committees could raise a bunch of money and transfer it to you. And it was great. Everybody can raise money on their own. And the DNC, I think the value add is somewhat funding state parties, but also coordinating messaging and providing data. And I think more and more the opportunity for the DNC to play a really impactful role in our space will narrow down to providing data and technology. So I sort of think if the DNC continues to exist, it needs to be like a hub of like tech and data, like access and guidance and maybe building things. And I guess that can be done by contracting out to companies like yours. It can be. Yeah. I've heard people make the argument that the DNC as as an institution isn't the best home for like building technology because it can sort of change on a whim. We've been extremely lucky to have awesome leadership at the DNC for a while now. Nell Thomas, their CTO, is one of my favorite people in this space. Um, they're head of data is this wonderful human being named Catherine Tarsney, who's a friend of mine and is also one of my favorite people in the space. Everybody working there is really cool and really smart. And the tech team, which is the part I know the best, 
from what I can tell, is given a lot of power and autonomy in the organization and has staffing well beyond what I've seen in you know previous eras. That's all been great, but that could also, my biggest fear is like go away with the snap of a finger. We've seen that kind of thing happen before. It could get better, it could get worse. It's hard to have that be the home long-term for all of our tech stack unless there were guardrails to like protect it from the political winds. What are the things are you seeing in the general space you operate in data, tech, politics, in that intersection since you've been uh, at work in it? What else have you seen as far as innovations that you think well of? Or maybe that you don't think well of? (laughs) I think it's great whenever anybody comes into this space and tries to do something cool and helpful. Um, And I think there's been a good spirit of collaboration and and friendship, um, which has been great um, and is really necessary because it's hard for people to accomplish anything um, alone or... You know, and and I've seen more like rather than making a better version of what currently exists, we've had things like where a text, everybody makes a texting app or everybody makes a call time app or everybody makes an X, Y, or Z app. Um, I've seen more people doing like their own kind of creative thing, which is fun and helpful. I think the DNC um, making their data warehouse this really well-organized really accessible, really well documented, um, like central clearinghouse for companies like mine or, or nonprofits or whatever kind of structure is building tech to work with is super transformative. And I think there's organizations like the Civic Tech Alliance, which are doing the same thing on the soft side now, which is great. And that is a huge game changer. Um, I, I am hoping that we see more of that like centralization of infrastructure that other people can sort of build on top of and build around. Something I really love to see is increased price transparency and decreased costs. So I think products are a lot cheaper for campaigns to acquire on their own. And, you know, there's vendors in our space who um, really I think sometimes, I don't know, I'm always skittish when people are really opaque in, in about their pricing and about what their package offerings are. Um, you sort of feel like you're getting ripped off, right? And I think um, we all know politics is a space where there are a couple campaigns or PACs or IEs that are looser with their pocketbooks than others. And so I think that um, that dynamic as existed so that organizations could probably make a bunch of money with like one client that hopefully um, funds their work with the with the folks who have less money but I, I think the average campaign or average like person running an in-state advocacy group so so I say that to say it makes sense and I don't begrudge people for being you know discreet about their pricing but I think what happens is the average user, goes to a website of one of these companies, gets really confused about what the offering actually is, what it means to subscribe, what are the next steps, and then just like doesn't engage, right? I think that our movement is way bigger than we know and being really transparent about what we offer, what it costs, what the next steps are, how to engage makes it more likely that our tech gets into more people's hands. 
one of the things I've imagined about your offering, and I did this sort of without real reference to what's actually going on, is that it can be a useful part of the infrastructure for other political tech, um, like similar to like the data that ballot ready collects, right? Totally. Um, to have that, to have that sort of done externally, if you're building something that can use it, it seems like it can be a building block for that's in an adjacent space that serves campaigns or serves similar clients, but needs this data. To what extent has that happened and what kind of, uh, what, what are some examples of firms that you have been able to do that with? Well, you mentioned EvenScore. That's an example of a product we're hoping to support with our data. Man, I never know. People are so weird about you name dropping them sometimes. I never know what's like kosher or what's not, but I think that we're linked in their documentation. So I can say, Change Research uses our turnout scores, for example, to inform some of their weighting. We have other pollsters who use our turnout scores. We have media consumption scores that some folks are using to do media planning. Oh, our finance and results data is licensed by the DNC and packaged into their data warehouse. A lot of folks subscribe to our forecasts and make resource allocation decisions through that or surface our forecasts in their own products. When you talk about forecasts, what exactly do you mean? Do you like, do you have a forecast for uh, what's going to happen in every congressional district? Yeah, that's right. So what's going to happen in 2020? <laughs> I don't know. There's a couple districts still out there um, that haven't been defined, but also um, our, our predictions work a lot better when, all the sort of general election candidates are known because it's all, you know, campaign specific and, you know, the majority of states haven't done their primaries yet. So I don't know, but I'm not uh, feeling great uh, <laughs> about 2022. Supposing, I don't know, I'm a media organization and I want to put a dashboard up of predictions in uh, every congressional district. Could they go to you for that? Could I... Uh, if I were just doing something internally to the Democratic Party, could I? How does that work? Yeah, in theory, I think we'd want to evaluate that opportunity and make sure it's you know values aligned. In 2020, we were more like close to the vest with our predictions because with our forecasts, because we had a number of state parties that didn't love that our numbers were skeptical in a lot of cases about Democrats' chances and didn't want candidates to see them and get discouraged, which I understand. Because um, also, like, when you make one of these products, you understand that it's it's not a deterministic view of the world, right? It's saying, based on all this data we have and this, like, rough concept we have of how that all works together to correlate with past results, here's, like, what would happen and it's very like provisional and, um, you know, t you, you like kind of know what it is, but then you show a candidate, you know, you have a 1% chance of winning and they're like, what, you know, <laughs> that they're like really miserable about it. So that's, um, understandable. So we didn't really share them widely for that reason. And then in the end, the forecasts ended up being, uh, I think the average error was like, close to 4% was the mean absolute error, which is 
or four points, percentage points, which is lower than the polling error that year, just something closer to six points, but um, was still like higher than we were, we would be comfortable with. In which direction? Were you the same direction as yeah, pollsters? Yeah, yeah, Same direction as pollsters. In other words, um, it was more Republican than you than you thought? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it was a little different state to state. But actually, uh, the leading cause for this is um, it's one of these things where you feel kind of dumb for doubting yourself in retrospect. So in 2016, 2018, we built forecasts and they were off by about two points on average. What was happening is in early 2020, people were upset because our forecasts were a lot more doomy and gloomy than public polls, and they thought that it wasn't plausible, right? And so what we did, which we hadn't done those previous years, is we started incorporating a polling average into our forecasts. So you basically added their error in. <laughs> right. That's exactly what we averaged like our error with their error. And that's almost exactly what the number is actually. So um, so we took that all back out. And then actually last year we participated in a couple evaluations. Um, Mind the Gap did one evaluation project. The DNC did an evaluation project. Our forecasts were, were kind of snapped right back to that two point, you know, mean absolute error. We felt really, really good about it. Um, and we did, you know, we had numbers that were really close on turnout, which kind of exceeded most people's expectations. And we had New Jersey as about as close as it was. And anyway, so we feel really good about um, our forecast going into 2022. Um, we also made some adjustments for how we handled in 2020. Another source of error that was on totally on our side was how we kind of signaled to the model that a district was rural or urban. It gets pretty technical and in the weeds, but we train our models with aggregate election results and individual level data that we represent as arrays. Anyway, long story short, uh, population density is like a highly predictive factor, especially over the last few cycles. And we were we had structured our data in such a way that our model wasn't recognizing population density the way that it should have. So um, we fixed that too. Do you know if the other side is has what you provide and or have copied it or generated it independently? I don't know. I've seen a couple random things that sort of look like deck, but it's hard to know. Sometimes the marketing material is is sort of confusing and says AI a lot and then it doesn't provide many specifics. But I I think that on the right, honestly, like there are a lot I say this as somebody who just kind of tries to dig around on the internet and talk to people who have heard things. And so this is all very, you know, we have our like sort of um, folklore about what the right is doing and they probably have their folklore about us. Well, maybe less so because they, they listen to the great battlefield. <laughs> um, I wish they had a great battlefield. Um, they do. Oh, they do. What's it called? There's a guy who covered, I had him on my show. There's a guy who who has a, it's kind of a small version of higher ground. And, uh, and he, I, he told me he listened to like nearly all, every episode I had. Oh. <laughs> and, and that, and now he's been interviewing political entrepreneurs on the right. So it's much more narrow than, than mine and less frequent. That guy's name is Eric Wilson. And it's, his group is Startup Caucus. 
Oh, I think I've seen that. And he's somewhere. episode 570 in my cool in my podcast, but that was a little while ago. It was uh, back, yeah, January 2021. Oh, wow. I think what the right does with targeting is um, like pool data from all the different committees together and have sort of like live updating models that are across the hard and soft side that sort of look at look at all outreach that's happening. And I think if we could build something similar, that would be really powerful and a tool like DEC probably wouldn't be necessary. I think their voter contact tools are more opinionated than like Vote Builder, for example, about you know the next list you should talk to. And maybe that's wrong, but that's been my kind of going assumption. At least that's what I've independently kind of want us to move toward on the on the left because I see so many folks who don't really know where to start. And I think I've developed the expectation that the right is already doing that a bit to some degree. So you are approximately seven years into this odyssey, depending on how you count it. You are now a father. Do you see yourself kind of working with DEC for a long, long time into the future? Or is it something that you'd like to find a successor and go do something new? How are you thinking about what you want to do and how you want to push your company? Having a kid makes you want to just spend all your time with your kid. So that's been one part of my experience. But I also feel an obligation to this work. I'm just so mad every day at the things I read in the news. The other thing is when, when our side is, has more power as they do now, I get frustrated. I get so frustrated with our side, like the fact that the child tax credit sort of just expired and um, that's it's, it. You know, It's super hard to govern with a tight majority or not a progressive governing coalition. Yeah, it's, it is frustrating. It's so frustrating. Um, and so there are times when I'm just like, what's the point? You know, we have such a marginal impact to begin yeah, with. Yeah, but these guys are so much better than having Trump and the Republicans. My God. Totally. Well, and that's where I end up coming down, right? But you go through more of the ups and downs of the journey when it's not just a slog against the empire, right? And so I go through that journey every now and then and, and arrive at the same spot you just articulated yeah, there's turbulence, but I feel pretty committed. And I also think about, you know, I first started working in politics like 15 years ago, and there's a lot of nostalgia for Barack Obama, which I can appreciate because he's great. But when he first ran, he was against same-sex marriage. And he like said a lot of kind of weird, moderate things about guns. And he said a lot of weird, moderate things about the Patriot Act and expanded our presence in Afghanistan and did all these things that are sort of like incompatible with mainstream democratic politics today. And so um, even just on our side, we're moving forward so much. It, it's so incremental and it's so hard to notice, but we're winning in like, you know, shifting the parameters further to our, anyway, I'm kind of rambling. I'm tired, but, but let me not torture you too much longer. I always ask, is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't? I don't know. I, I wish I had done a better job of answering your last question. because It's a really good one. I do plan on doing deck for as long as I feel like we can make a difference. Right. And so if we had more resources, if this year continues to be as successful as it's been so far, 
if we get feedback from our users that this is really helping them, then I think our team will all just kind of want to double down and, and, and do a better job. But if things kind of peter out and we had a sense that other people were doing what we do better or that it wasn't as helpful as we thought, I think there are other problems to solve always. So I'm just going to keep an eye on that. I appreciate your candor and your sort of lack of salesmanship about <laughs> where things are. And I, and I just caution any potential investor to note that because sometimes I think investors are taken in by people who are better at spinning things than Max has attempted to be in this, <laughs> in this context. And I have similar characteristics in that, I, you know, I don't like to conjure up stories that I can't really believe in. And I also want to come across as honest. So I, I, I value that about you. And I, it's been great to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? I appreciate the disclaimer. And yeah, I, I also... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, part of why I try to be candid about this stuff is I don't want other folks to be discouraged when they hear folks who are more effective at describing the ambitions and successes of their teams than I've been here. But, you know, you hear that and you think, well, God, this seems, this feels a lot harder for me. Why aren't I having that success? And I have that feeling when I hear other people in our space kind of describe their successes. So I think we've objectively had a lot of successes and I'm really thrilled about where we're at, but it's a slog, you know, and it's just making a difference is a slog. And so I don't want people who might listen to this to feel like it's all rainbows, you know, that their difficulty is a step in a journey. Right. Um, and, I mean, I, I, I ran a company that grew every year that I ran it. And then when Stu took over, grew astronomically beyond that. And I can testify that it was never easy. There was no easy year. And that's, I think, the nature of entrepreneurship. And it's a, it's a good place to be, but it definitely uh, will make you sweat. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat today. <laughs> Thank you. That was Max Wood. He is at deck.tools. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.